2: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Mr.
1: President, up here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun! He's gonna shoot the president! Holy smokes, I've gotta do something! All right, Lee, time to be coming up. darkmyths.org and Media Group proudly present to you The Lone Gunman Podcast featuring your host Rob Clark where research comes to shine and myths come to die stay tuned be right there
3: A friend of Miltier's, William Somerset, who was also an FBI informant, said Miltier was threatening JFK.
2: And Somerset was telling him that he was really radical and he was saying bad things about what they wanted to do to Kennedy.
3: Agent Adams completed the Miltier investigation, and a week later, shots rang out in Dallas.
2: And I thought to myself, what did I do wrong?
3: His boss said, find Miltier. He says his supervisor prohibited him from conducting a proper interrogation. Miltier was released, and Agent Adams transferred.
2: And where did I go but to Dallas, Texas? Joseph Adams, Miltier, looking at the presidential car moments before the president was killed.
3: At the National Archives and Records Administration, Don found many reports missing or manipulated, including his file on Miltier from 63.
2: Everything that I had done was gone. Everything was gone.
3: Miltier was never even mentioned in the Warren Commission report.
2: When Hoover set up the propaganda in the FBI, don't embarrass the FBI. That was his rules. And you didn't. So they ordered everything put into the archives and to be forgotten about it.
3: But Don can't forget and hope something is done before the truth is buried forever.
2: I mean, when we die off, when we're gone, there's not going to be anybody who's going to sit here and tell you these things. I hope the truth gets told.
0: So do I, Don, so do I. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the show. This is episode one, one, two of the Lone Gummin Podcast. That's right, episode 111 is here. There are 111 other episodes out there for you to partake in and enjoy. If you like this show on iTunes, simply subscribe. All my shows are posted there as well. If you're on Android... It's real easy to subscribe, head over to tlgpodcast.com, subscribe using your Android device of choice and makes it real easy, there's a button right there, it's green, you can't miss it on the right hand side and uh, right above that is a donate button if you would care to buy your boy a cup of coffee and uh, or something like that, uh, I'd greatly appreciate it and thank you this week. To Mr. John Titus from CovertBookReport.com for sponsoring this show. Everybody check out his website. It's uh, chock full of interesting articles over there. Uh, a lot of them with political, different political slants. Uh, there's uh, some devoted entirely to JFK and aspects of the assassination. But they're all well written, well researched, and... Uh, I implore all of you to head over and check out covertbookreport.com I'll put a link to that up over on TLG podcast along with the post for this show. And uh, thank you once again, John Titus for sponsoring this show. And uh, you know, if you can't figure out how to put covert book report into your browser, like I said, I'll put a link up and, and head over there and support John cause he supports this show. Uh, I was recently reading an article over there, uh, taking another look at the John Birch Society. Uh, So, you know, a lot of good, interesting stuff over there. Feel free to check it out. Now, this week you heard the Joseph Miltier clip. Actually, it was Don Adams' clip at the beginning of the show talking about Joseph Miltier. Um, This is a man who met Joseph Miltier, who investigated Joseph Miltier, who questioned Joseph Miltier, who saw Joseph Miltier with his own two eyes. Okay people. Now he identifies Joseph Miltier in that Alchin's photo uh, uh, on Houston Street um, as you know being Joseph Miltier in Dilley Plaza. You know I mean Joseph Miltier had a very distinctive uh like swoopy poof on the right side of his head. He had some kind of bobs big boy thing going on with his hair there. <laughs> not really sure but it's a very unique look um, and it, his hair was shorter on the sides and the back he wore distinctive glasses he, you know he had a pudgy little face and you know grayish white hair don adams who met the man who questioned the man who interviewed the man you know saw him in this picture and and was convinced that it was him um and In the years since, of course, we've come to find out that Joseph Miltier was actually in Dallas on November 22nd. So the chances of it being him are, are, you know, even greater. Um, Of course, you know, it's a photo, but it's what we have. And, you know, the evidence supports it. And according to what we know about this guy, Joseph Miltier, today, he is the type of guy who would have wanted a front row seat to JFK being taken out for sure. You know, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff today and but you know, before we actually get into it too terribly deeply um I think it's time for everybody's new favorite segment. Ridiculousness of the week. That's right, ridiculousness of the week. This week is brought to you by a lot of people a lot of people sent me this link because it's just patently superfluously if that's even a word ridiculous um ted cruz he's running for president right now as we speak uh his real name is rafael cruz his father's name is rafael cruz as well he's a junior his dad of course senior um <laughs> And and a lot of you guys out there, if you're on Facebook and you're interested in JFK and you're in some of these groups, you know, you got people toting this article around from Milfuegos and uh, the Wayne Madsen Report and uh, the Democratic Underground. They're all floating this out there. Allegedly. They allege that Rafael Cruz, Ted Cruz's dad, was in New Orleans in the summer of 1963 caught in a photograph, helping Lee Oswald distribute his hands off Cuba leaflets. Now they allege also that Rafael Cruz was an anti Castro Cuban. Although we have no verifiable links to any anti Castro groups, anti, you know, Castro Cuban exile groups, that he was allegedly supposed to be a part of. We have no proof of that whatsoever. But we do have a grainy photo. And one of the folks touting this grainy photo as proof of something. Is of course Raphael Cinque over at the Oswald Innocence Campaign. Among other people. Um, But he's screaming at the loudest. So you, you know when somebody starts screaming the loudest. You got to kind of listen and be like alright dude. You know, everything you bring us is crap, you know, and based on faulty uh, photo analysis. So along with this Milfuegos article, they had a picture of Ted Ted Cruz's dad, Rafael, on his high school graduation folder, which I believe was in 1957. Now, I'm no photo analyst expert, you know, but I'm pretty good. Uh, at least when comparing people, and it's it's really a lot easier when you have you know a frontal face shot, which we do here. Now, of course, we're talking a five-year age difference here, from fifty-seven to sixty-three. Uh, four, depending on you know when your birthdays are falling, um, you're not going to change too much from you know eighteen to twenty-two, twenty-three. Um, but it would appear to me that this, these two guys look nothing alike. Now, of course I'm comparing a relatively clear, uh, photo with a grainy, uh, one of those grainy, you know, I don't know. I don't even know if the picture that they're touting out here is a film still, or if it's a photo. Um, I think it's a film still, you know, and, uh, It's grainy. It's black and white. Uh, Facial features are not very well defined in this photo. But, you know, they're alleging that, you know, Ted Cruz's dad, Rafael, was helping Oswald hand out leaflets in New Orleans in the summer of 63 as some sort of, you know, CIA operation, right? Because supposedly Rafael Cruz worked for some CIA-linked, RCA Corporation, you know, whatever. Uh, You know, without any proof whatsoever of any of their allegations, other than, hey, this guy looks like this guy, you know, (laughs) hoo-hoo. And you know what? Even if it is Rafael Cruz in the picture, what does it really matter? I mean, seriously, what is the big deal? What does it matter? Now, we know for a fact that, that Lee Oswald recruited and paid a couple folks to help him hand these leaflets out. You know, they even talked to one for the Warren Commission. Isn't that thing His last name was Steele. Um, so you know what? Who, who cares if this guy was Rafael Cruz or not? Who really cares? You know, supposedly Oswald recruited him, paid him. Um, you know, it could have been like, you know, hey, man, I'll, I'll give you three bucks if you help me hand these leaflets out, and when they're gone, you're done. And you know, if he would say, "What? What's this hands-off Cuba crap?" You know, I'm I'm, I'm anti-Castro. I'm not handing this stuff out. And Leo said, "Okay, well, I make it five bucks." You know, I know I don't believe in this stuff either, but it's a job. You know, we just hand them out, and we go on about our business. And and he acquiesced. Okay, well, you know, it, it could be nothing more more important than that. But really, who cares? Who cares? You know, a couple years later, Rafael Cruz would move to to uh, Canada. You know, that's why everybody's saying, oh, Ted Cruz is Canadian, and, you know, he's not really, shouldn't be eligible to be a president, and this, that, and the other, and, you know, who really cares? Who cares? You know, so what if it was Rafael Cruz, which I doubt that it was, but even if it was, who in the hell cares? You know, and for them to tout this from the highest rooftops is most definitely ridiculousness of the week not proof of anything, people, and and I'd like to thank everybody that sent me that little nugget. I uh, definitely saw it, definitely timely, and uh, too many people sent it to me for me to thank them individually. But thank you to everybody out there. Keep them coming. You know, I can't be everywhere at once, and, and I can't see everything out there. But definitely keep them coming. I'm sitting on a few, but I'm going to need a few a few more here shortly. So every time you see something like this or hear something like this, send it my way. So we can let everybody know about this ridiculousness going on out there. Okay, now let's get into Joseph Miltier. You know, we've talked about him on the show before. But we've never really, really taken a good hard look at this man. Because, you know, the more and more I look at what was going on down in New Orleans and Dallas with these right wingers, the more intrigued I am by this Prophetic revelation of Joseph Miltier's. And I'm going to play you a clip. It's about five minutes long and it contains some of the actual audio from Somerset and Miltier discussing the Kennedy assassination and what was going to happen and, and things of this nature. And, and interspersed it in with all this is, is the revelations of an FBI agent that had actually wired Somerset's uh, kitchen kitchen and how they did it, how they caught Miltier on tape. So, without further ado, we're going to listen to this, and I'm hoping the audio comes through. I think it should. I think it's loud enough that you can hear it, but uh, if you can't, after we come back, I promise I will I will read to you what Miltier said, um, so it's nice and clear, and that we can talk about it. But I'm pretty sure that this audio is okay, and uh, shouldn't be any problem hearing it, but Five minutes, and I'll be right back, folks. I don't know. Kez is coming here, I think, on
1: 18th or something like that, to make some kind of speech. I think it's 18th he's supposed to be here to make a speech. I don't know why you know what it's about. If you didn't make your money, no, you're going to a lot to say about the given because there's so many of them here.
4: Well, we had to set up the tape recorder in Somerset's apartment in order to, uh, to make the recording where he met with... Uh, this other uh, man uh, milter in order to do so uh it was a very large tape recorder that was made especially for uh, intelligence work weighing approximately 40 pounds i carried it to the third floor of his apartment uh, placed it in a closet and then ran the microphone around the baseboard in the kitchen and the microphone was uh hidden by by the chairs where military and uh, Somerset to have their meeting. Why more
1: hell are you think the best way would be uh an office building a high you think he knows his and they're gonna try to kill it Get uh, this Kennedy, I mean, get this Kennedy, i have tell you, going to be a hard process. I believe. Now, you may have a 3 out you may have three-digit of office doing that, but I don't know how them Secret Service, they never cover all the office doing, and where he's going. Do you know whether they do that or not? Well, so have, if they have any suspicion, they would, of course. But that suspicion, right i think out there, take it up that you tell you, take it out there
4: Well, always going to come back and take the uh, astoundingly, the conversation came up that this man wanted to know how many people that President Kennedy had, that was his look-alike, that went with him, and our informant wanted to know why, and he said, Well, there was plans to assassinate him. The further conversation on the tape revealed that the assassination was to take place uh, from an office building with a high-powered rifle there was no particular city mentioned uh, or was there any particular person mentioned that was to do the assassination the tape was made on uh, November the 9th and John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy was doing Miami on the 18th of November in 1963 The close proximity of the tape being made and his visit uh, made quite a few changes in the security. They changed the motorcade and uh, I believe that he was helicoptered and rather than have a motorcade, uh, additional men were um, secured, Uh, uh, everyone was made aware that that, uh, there may be a problem so there was a drastic change in the procedures he wasn't as accessible in this city as he might have been in the past
1: what if that kid is getting shot we gotta know where we at yeah but yeah. well, you know what I thought that would be a real shame to do that They there wouldn't be nice. stone unturned there no no way well, hell no. they'll pick up somebody for the hour that And they might get what happened. Oh Just do that. So I just right. throw the public off. Yeah. Well, that's right. Well, somebody's
4: gonna have to look here if you get yeah. We thought we did a good job and was very grateful the fact that it did not happen in Miami. It could have very well happened in, in Miami, um, as it did in Dallas. So it, it touched... It touched each of us uh, very, very closely, particularly myself, as hearing the words that they were going to assassinate President Kennedy. Why how do
1: you thinking the best way we're being uh off still? Uh uh a high heart. right? And they're gonna really try to kill it. Uh,
0: And there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth. It doesn't get any clearer than that. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have some general information about how things are going to happen. But when you have some specific information, like from an office building with a high-powered rifle, and that they're going to pick somebody up within hours after the shooting to blame it on, you know, that's pretty, pretty specific and you know, after the assassination, Somerset asked Miltier if he if he if he had just guessed, you know, and was right about guessing what was going to happen. And Miltier told him, "Look, I don't I I don't do any guessing, you know. Which, you know, it doesn't get any clearer than that, folks. And this is a real threat before it even happens. And you heard what Don Adams said at the beginning on the clip that." The Warren Commission knew nothing about this. You will not find the name Joseph Miltier in the Warren Commission report. And there is a good reason for that, because the FBI dropped the proverbial ball on this one. And you also heard Don Adams at the beginning in this clip saying that the FBI... The way their propaganda was set up is you do not embarrass the FBI. It doesn't happen. They will not be embarrassed. They will not look amateurish and foolish in the eyes of the world and the American public. It will not happen. They will deep sick shit before it even gets there. And for them to admit that they had knowledge, foreknowledge, and they did not do anything to prevent this, is very, very damning on the FBI. They dropped the ball. Big time. It doesn't get any more big time ball dropping than this. And J. Edgar Hoover, you know, did not want to look bad and did not let the Warren Commission know anything about Joseph Miltier. I'm not even sure the Warren Commission investigated any other credible threats to President Kennedy. Um, and there were many, you know, and not just this one, you know, there was there was not, you know, there was credible threats and, of course, there's nut job threats. Like there was some guy, I think, was in New Orleans that, who sent President Kennedy a dead bird in a shoebox to the White House. And so, of course, whenever President Kennedy went to New Orleans, they watched this guy who had sent his dead bird in a shoebox you know, to make sure he didn't do anything. But when we're talking about these extreme right wing groups, very credible threats. And I can point you to one important document from an FBI informant. It's an FBI document. They talk about Dr. Stanley Drennan in California and the John Birch Society and and having meetings and discussing the assassination of the president, the attorney general, Senator uh, Jake Javits, and... You know, they they discuss how he supports these anti-Castro Cubans and sends them drugs and money and supplies and guns down that way. Um, You know, and this document, this memo was dated a week after the General Walker incident. Walker and the John Birch Society are specifically mentioned in this document and also discussed in this document is the fact that whoever this gets blamed on Will not be able to be tied back to the John Birch Society. Um, you know, much like Miltier said, they're going to pick somebody up within hours to blame it on, because of course the FBI always gets their man. They can't have some crazy assassin running loose in Dallas and them not catch him. You know, I don't think people understand this. They cannot have that. They cannot have a presidential assassin assassin on the loose and getting away from the FBI, the Secret Service, the Dallas Police Department, the Dallas Sheriff's Office. They cannot let this happen. It's bad enough they already let it happen on their watch. And to let the guy get away and them not catch him is even worse. So... You know, like I said, the notorious FBI, as Lee Oswald called him, always get their man. And if they can't get their man, they're going to get some man to blame this on. And who better? <laughs> you know, the, whoever planned this, this assassination was a freaking genius. Genius. They had to know about Oswald about his defection about his so-called Castro supporting stuff that he was doing in New Orleans that summer who better than to set up for the murder of John F Kennedy than a commie loving lunatic it was actually you know a former Marine a family man uh, you know, just trying to just trying to get by, you know, because Lee Oswald really has no motive to kill John Kennedy. And it makes no sense if he tried to kill General Walker to then a couple months later want to kill John Kennedy. I mean, he, General Walker and John Kennedy couldn't be two more different ideological individuals. OK, I mean, you have General Walker over here on the right and Kennedy way over here on the left. You know, and for Lee Oswald to want to kill them both makes no sense whatsoever. None. None. And, you know, it just it just boggles the mind. But, you know, what does make sense is these guys were smart. These right wingers were smart. You know, they were plotting and planning for months, if not years, to get this guy out of there because they were convinced that he was going to turn the United States into a communist haven. You know, he wasn't doing anything about Cuba. He wasn't doing anything about Russia. He wanted to hold Khrushchev's hand and sing Kumbaya around the campfire and, you know, peace and love, man. And, and, you know, he wasn't going to do anything about Vietnam. You know, and his inaction against the communists... You know, makes him in their eyes a communist and these guys, uh, most of them southerners, most of them extremists were scared to death of the communist propaganda that they had been subjected to for the past uh, you know 10 years or whatever it was because um, you got to remember you had communists in China you had communists in Vietnam you had communists in Russia, communists in Cuba. These guys were worried about communist takeover, you know. It was like, you know, the ultimate boogeyman back then. You know, it would be like equating it to if, you know, Obama was, uh, you know, meeting with the head of ISIS and, and wanting to talk about peace. And, and uh, you know, instead of destroying the world, you know, coming together to make it a better place and, you know, and making the United States, uh, you know, an Islamic state and, uh, you know. Whatever with, you know, you know, because, you know, back then it was a communist. Now it's a terrorist, you know, whatever. The point I'm trying to make is, you know, back then people had a lot more time on their hands. People had a lot less distractions in their life. And back then, this is when you could actually make change, you know, there was a lot of changes coming back then in the early '60s. We're talking about integration. We're talking about civil rights. You know, and and people did not want this stuff to happen. They did not want this change to happen. They did not want to see us, um, you know, holding hands with the communists and and and, and trying to trying to be make nicey nicey, uh, you know, with Russia and and this that and the other, and they viewed kennedy as a communist threat a very viable communist threat and they you know they made very viable threats against his life you know and it's in the documents it, you can't deny it you know the documents are there these societies were there these people were there you know we can tie walker in with these extreme right wingers out of california you know if Joseph Miltier was there in Dealey Plaza, so was Edgar Eugene Bradley, or Eugene, or uh, whatever his name was, Braden, Jim Braden, whatever his AKA was. You know, this guy was a right-wing California uh, <coughs> Klansman, basically. Uh, you know, extreme right winger from California. You know, Jim Garrison was sniffing hard for this guy, trying to get him extradited to uh New Orleans, and Ronald Reagan wouldn't do it. Ronald Reagan wouldn't do it. When he was governor of California, he wouldn't extradite Jim Braden or Eugene Bradley, whatever his name is. Um, but allegedly he was arrested in the Dilly Plaza, for another guy with the front row seat for the assassination. So you know, it's it's just insane to me that, that this credible threat is overlooked by our research community so often and dismissed. And I want to talk a minute about Willie Somerset. Now, William Somerset was an FBI informant for many, many years, starting, I think, all the way back to 1949, 47 or 49. He was also an extreme right winger, a Klansman. Uh, I think he had his own clan chapter in Georgia or Florida. Um, I mean, the guy was legit. He was a legit right winger, but he did not agree with all these violent tactics that these groups were employing and all the hate and all the fear mongering and hate and violence. He abhorred it. He abhorred it. But when you're in that kind of circle, you know, you can't look weak. You have to maintain a facade of hatred, you know, to gain these guys' trust. And for the longest time, for 20 plus years, William Somerset was an informant. He informed, of course, about this, about uh, church bombings, murders, uh, you know, the Kennedy assassination, the King assassination. You know, he informed about that before it happened. And, you know, this guy knew a lot of these guys. And he was in the right places at the right times with the right people to know a lot of this stuff. And, you know, the Miami PD knew this guy, knew he was an informant. Their name for him was Bucket Ass 88. Uh, Bucket Ass 88, or just 88. Um, Because Somerset was a pretty big dude. I mean, he wasn't a gigantic fat dude, but he was a big man. You know, like... Big man, like 6'5", big man. And he was legit. You know, it wasn't like, you know, you had some David Pesci-like character talking to like, huh? So, uh, uh, when you go, when y'all going to kill Kennedy? Joe, when are you going to kill Kennedy? Where are you going to do it from? Uh, you know, no, this guy's legit. These are two guys talking. You heard the tape. You know, Somerset's got to come off as legit to get good information. And he does. And he did. You know, for 20 plus years, he was one of the most reliable FBI informants that they had in the extreme right wing movement. Now, you know, I'm sure, <clears throat> you know, it was a kind of a you leave me alone kind of thing. And I'll, I'll let you guys know when something dangerous is going to happen or, or something of this nature. Um, you know, and they were likely paying this guy because he did have good information. Um, and you know it can't be denied. You know what Miltier said; it just can't be denied. You know people want to call it coincidence. They want to call it a luck. They want to call it, oh well. You know it's just a, you know it's just it's just two guys talking. You know it doesn't mean anything. Well, it kind of does if the guy was in Dealey Plaza. You know, we can tie Joseph Miltier back to Guy Bannister and Kent Courtney and Leander Perez and all these other New Orleans, uh, you know, stream right wingers back to General Walker, to the West Coast guys, to the Midwest guys all throughout Kentucky. I think uh, Miltier once flew 6,000 miles to, you know, spread the word about about this meeting they were having in in October of 63. <coughs> You know, he was visiting Dallas. He was visiting New Orleans. He was visiting Florida, <coughs> excuse me, Tennessee, Chicago, you know, all over. I mean, this guy was legit and he had a lot of money. Um, that's one thing about Military. He had his own money, he had uh, oil interests, and, uh, you know, he did pretty well for himself. He had a lot of time on his hands and a lot of money. And very strong convictions, and Somerset, who ran into a lot of bad, bad people in his lifetime, to, you know, said that Joseph Miltier is one of the most abhorrent, violent people he's ever met. And you know, after the assass- after the assassination went down, um, Don Adams was transferred out out of uh, Georgia to Dallas. You know, he said when they went to interview Miltier, they wouldn't even let him question him the way he wanted to. It was very much a, they had to handle Miltier with kid gloves, you know, and, and, and not really go there with him. Because to, to arrest Miltier <clears throat> or to try to prove that he was part of some kind of plot would have been admitting that they dropped the ball. And they're not the only ones that dropped the ball when it comes to the Kennedy assassination. You know, that, that that Stanley Drennan report I was telling you about earlier, you know, J. Edgar Hoover himself sent copies of this threat to the special agent in charge of Los Angeles Secret Service. He sent, sent it to Rowley, Um you know, the head of Secret Service in D.C. He sent copies to RFK. He sent copies to Senator Javits. He sent copies to Kenneth O'Donnell. You know, to relate to uh, JFK and his daily briefs. You know, these are very real, credible threats. You know, and and the FBI and the Secret Service supposedly checked this out and said, oh, nothing to see here. These guys are just bullshitting. They're just talking, not, you know, not really capable of doing anything. You know, nothing to see here. Move on. You know, all it takes is a couple of these guys to get together to have the funds to get the ball rolling and to have a plan a really really good plan and you know that's it and these were smart guys they weren't stupid they weren't dumb corn fed bread rednecks these were smart guys and a lot of them with military backgrounds a lot of them with a lot of money these are smart businessmen all convinced of one thing that Kennedy was a communist threat and he needed to be eliminated. Leander Perez, he was a former judge in uh, Plax was it Plaxmine Parish? It's about it's a little south of New Orleans down there. Uh, he was he would, then, then then he went from uh, being a judge down there to being the DA. He was DA down there for like forty years. Uh, he lived in New Orleans. He had a place in New Orleans as well as Plaquemine Parish. Um, he was selling uh, oil rights out of Plaquemine Parish because it was ninety percent swamp land and it was illegal as hell. But he managed to amass for himself a hundred million dollar fortune. Okay, this is the DA of Plaxmine Parish. Back, you know, in the 50s, he managed to amass a $100 million fortune. $100 million. Jim Garrison knew very well who this guy was. He shared an office building right down the hall from Guy Bannister before they moved to the Newman Building. Uh Guy Bannister knew very well who Leander Perez was. Leander Perez and Guy Bannister's secretary, Delphine Roberts, were excommunicated from the Catholic Church for protesting against integration in this Catholic school down in New Orleans. They were excommunicated from the Catholic Church for protesting this. You know, so... Don't think Delphine Roberts wasn't some hate-filled monger, too. She wasn't just some, you know, sassy red-haired secretary sitting at the desk for Guy Bannister. Oh, no, no, no. She was in the middle of all this shit, too. You know, these were all bad, bad people, I'm telling you. And and is it their fault that they were bad? I don't know. You know, it was just an ideology that a lot of people had back then. They did not want things to change. They did not want things to change. You know, they were used to life in a certain way, and that's the way they liked it, and that's the way they wanted it to stay. You know, and uh, Miltier even admits in, in, in the book uh, JFK and the Murder of President Kennedy or General Walker and the Murder of President Kennedy that he believes it was Leander Perez who financed everything. The man had $100 million back in the 50s. Do you know how much that is today? I mean, my God. I mean, you're almost a billionaire today. I mean, that's, that's serious FU money. That's money that says I can do whatever I want to do to whoever I want to do and get away with it. You know, that's not to mention, you know, if, if Carlos Marcello didn't chip in a little bit here or there, You know, or these H.L. Hunt or these other right-winger oil guys in Texas wouldn't chip in a little bit here or there. You're talking big money, people. Big, big money. Money to get whatever you want. Money to pay whatever you need to pay or whoever you need to pay off. And, you know, a lot, a lot of money. You know, these guys were well-financed, well-organized, and provided a real, credible threat to the life of President Kennedy. Now, the Secret Service dropped the ball. You know, they, they, they didn't in Miami. They ended up taking him in a, in a helicopter and not doing the motorcade. Then we know what happened in Chicago with the foil plot there, and then Kennedy ended up not even going to Chicago. Then we get to Dallas. Now, after all these credible threats are made, the FBI is well aware of what Miltier has been saying. They're well aware of what these extreme right wingers have been saying. And then you're going to the city of hate. And I know people hate it when I call it that, but it is. It was the center of John Birch Society, the Minutemen, uh these extreme right wingers, General Walker, H.L. Hunt, you know, all these other bad dudes, the KKK. You're going to put John F. Kennedy in a convertible car and parade his ass through the middle of downtown Dallas with no protection and you think that he's going to make it to the other side alive? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You know, I understand that, you know, the Secret Service couldn't possibly, you know, have an agent or an officer at every office window And every building along the motorcade, that's just, that would just be a ridiculous abuse of manpower and resources that, you know, they just didn't have. You know, but, but, things changed a hell of a lot after his assassination. You know, after the assassination, you know, when Lyndon Johnson, who was the last president I can remember, To ride in an open car motorcade. Uh, You know. They would weld manhole covers down. They would nail windows down. They would clear buildings. And then lock them. They would put people on roofs. And. You know. But once again. This is a very labor intensive. (coughs) Use of manpower. And tax dollars. I mean. Because you know. You don't see. Presidents. Riding in open motorcades. At least, I, I can't remember one back to LBJ. I don't remember Nixon doing it. I don't remember Gerald Ford or, Pre- or, or uh, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton, uh, George Bush, or Obama. None of them riding in an open you know, motorcade. You just don't see it anymore. It's much, much easier and much, much more fiscally responsible not to do that dumb shit. Okay, because it's stupid. It's stupid. It's stupid. It's stupid. You know, nowadays, I, you know, I drive to, uh, to Maryland sometimes and I got to go down around there where Camp David is. And every once in a while I'll catch, uh, you know, Obama and his motorcade heading to Camp David. And when you see it in action, you know, it's, it's something to see out on the highway because what they do is they'll run point and they'll close off exit ramps and on-ramps, you know, a couple like two or three miles ahead of where they're headed. They'll go ahead and go up and close off, you know, exit exit and and, uh, on-ramps. And then there'll be a police motorcade, a motorcycle, you know, police escort. Then you'll have regular police escorts then you'll have about 10 or 15 black SUVs, all with lights, all rolling and moving fast, buddy. And I'm not joking. Then you'll have those guys sit back and they'll be they'll have these cops stationed at all these exit and off ramps. And they'll close them off all along the way. And then when they're closing, they'll fall in behind. So then you've got a, a trail of cops falling in behind you know this these 10 or 15 SUVs you don't know which one the president's in it could be in the first one the last one one in the middle second one who knows you know it makes it real hard for them to do something but you know and of course these cars nowadays are all bulletproof the tires are bulletproof they're bombproof you know whatever you know it's much more easier to secure a final destination such as where a president is going to be giving a speech, it's much more easier for the Secret Service to secure a, a a building, just one building, than have to worry about, you know, a hundred buildings <clears throat> all along the road, all, all along the motorcade route. You know, so a lot of things changed because because of what happened to President Kennedy. And you know, looking back on it, it was so 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 stupid to have him riding that motorcade like that, just. So stupid. You know, just just horrible decision. Horrible decision. Whoever the I mean, you know, people a bunch of different people get blamed for this decision. Um, even Kennedy himself, you know, they blame well. He said he wanted to, you know, blah 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 blah. But, you know, whatever the case, it was a horrible decision. Horrible. Horrible, horrible decision. Um but You know, it is what it is. History is the way it is. And, you know, things have changed now. Got to protect that puppet uh, that's in the White House, whoever it may be. You know, uh, as long as he does a good job, they'll protect him. You know, Uh, because, you know, if any any president was going to be assassinated for some ideological reason, as, as, as much stuff as Obama has done with taking away our constitutional rights and, you know, forcing people to buy this expensive health care and and all this other crap that he's done, stepping on the Constitution, you'd think somebody would have done something, you know. Or is, you know, the FBI just that good, you know. I mean, no, it's people are busy these days, you know, People don't have time like they used to to plot and plan and and, and do this kind of stuff. They they're they're more involved and their their lives are so busy and people just don't have time to care anymore, honestly. You know, we just bend over and take it and move on, you know, and look forward to getting our coffee the next morning. But, you know, it is what it is, and look, <clears throat> you can say what you want about material miltier. And his uh, prophetic revelation, you know, was it mere coincidence? Was it foreknowledge? Or was it a damn good guess? You know, we'll never know, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't look good to me when you put it with all the other available evidence that's out there. But that's it for this week, people. Please head over to tlgpodcast.com for more. Thank you. Thank you again for listening and sharing the show. This some bitch is in the can. Beamed up to the satellite and down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. Benjamin Banger, freemusicarchive.org, baby.